Great singing as always. It's so rich to declare these truths together. And it's a joy to be back in the book of Hebrews this morning. Take your Bible, turn to Hebrews chapter 10 as we enter into a new section in verses 19 to 25. This will be part one of this glorious beginning to the application of this letter. If you were alive during the 80s and 90s, it's very likely that you will immediately recognize this phrase, wax on, wax off. Now, if you're unfamiliar, that phrase comes from a a popular movie, The Karate Kid, released in 1984. I'm not vouching for all the content in that movie, but it is somewhat of a cultural phenomenon that almost all of us are aware of. And if you haven't seen the movie, I hate to spoil it, but it has been 39 years, so uh, you've had plenty of time to watch. The premise of the movie, of course, is a high school kid. He's moving away from his hometown to a new location, a new school, new friends, and he ends up being bullied by a group of high school boys who all know karate. After getting beat up time after time, he is pitied by the maintenance man of his apartment complex who just so happens to be from Okinawa, Japan, and a master of martial arts, Mr. Miyagi. Mr. Miyagi trains Daniel in the ways of karate, or he promises to, and Daniel, of course, accepts, and he says, come to my house tomorrow after school, we'll begin. So Daniel excitedly shows up to Mr. Miyagi's house, ready to learn how to punch and kick, only to be greeted with a long list of home maintenance projects that Mr. Miyagi wants him to finish. He's told to paint Mr. Miyagi's fence. He's told to wash Mr. Miyagi's deck. Finally, he's told to wash and wax all of Mr. Miyagi's cars. Don't ask how a maintenance man in a rundown apartment complex affords a fleet of cars. It's just a movie. But nonetheless, he has them and Daniel has to wax each one perfectly until finally Daniel is physically and emotionally exhausted. He believes he's been duped. It appears that Mr. Miyagi has just brought him over with a false promise of ninja training to really trick him into doing all of his household projects. All this culminates into one famous scene in the movie when Daniel has had enough and he confronts Mr. Miyagi over this injustice and says, I'm tired of all the projects. I'm ready to learn the real stuff. I need to to learn karate and stop getting beat up at school. And in that moment, Mr. Miyagi shows Daniel that through those house projects, he's actually been training him in the muscle memory that he will need for the fundamentals of martial arts. What initially seemed to Daniel to be completely unconnected and irrelevant to his daily life was in reality laying a foundation of skills that would prove to be indispensable once he understood how to apply them to real life situations. When it comes to biblical doctrine, Many people find it about as exciting as painting a fence or waxing a car. After all, we're, we're living real lives down here on earth with real problems, and we need some answers. I mean, doctrine is great for pastors and theologians, but I need to know how to respond to this issue in my marriage. And I need to know how to parent my child through this difficult season. I need to know what to do about the fact that I just lost my job and and the fact that my physical health is failing. 
You know, at some point, I'd love to hear more about doctrines like election or substitutionary atonement and justification and understand those things more deeply. But right now, what I need is some practical advice for my life situation. So the temptation then is to set aside doctrine for another day when life is not so busy and so complicated. And yet, isn't it interesting that the New Testament authors of Scripture are inspired by the Holy Spirit, often to write to real churches going through real problems, some of them faced with the, the, pro, uh, the prospect of death because of their faith, and yet almost always they're inspired to begin with long, detailed, sometimes heady explanations of doctrine. Isn't that interesting? And the reason for that is because every single sentence of practical wisdom in Scripture is birthed out of some biblical doctrine. Just as the health of your soil will dramatically impact how much fruit your plants produce, so too the health of your doctrine will dramatically impact the fruit you produce spiritually. And this impacts us uniquely today because we're turning the corner in the book of Hebrews. If you've been with us, you know that we've studied 10 and a half chapters of Hebrews so far that is composed primarily of doctrine. And today we start the wonderful task of turning into the application section of the book of Hebrews. And what we'll find is that the superiority of Christ is not only deeply theological, It's deeply practical. And from the rich soil of our study of Christ, it is my prayer that as we study this new section of application, that rich soil will cause us, by God's grace, to bear much good fruit. If you haven't been with us as we've gone through the book of Hebrews, I'm not gonna spend a lot of time going back, but I do want you to understand the basis of where we've been as we hit this major turning point. Here's the situation. You have a group of Christians, likely predominantly Jewish Christians, who are going through some difficult times. We don't know exactly what they're going through, but likely persecution for their faith, among other things. And it seems that at least some of them, if not the majority of them, are becoming worn out from this trial and they're becoming spiritually apathetic and they're even looking back at their old life in Judaism and saying, man, weren't those the good old days? Ah, just wish we could maybe go back to when life was easier. And to combat that dangerous temptation to look back over the fence at their previous life of Judaism, the author gives us 10 and a half chapters of doctrinal explanation as to why Jesus is superior to everything in their former life of Judaism. So far, we've seen the superiority of Christ in five particular areas. Jesus is superior to the prophets, Jesus is superior to the angels. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to the priesthood. And then just recently, we finished studying the fact that Jesus is superior to the old covenant and its sacrifices. Now, with all of that doctrine in mind, all that we've studied, we turn the corner now into applying all of these wonderful truths. Understand that as we turn the corner here into application, this is not just an application of the most recent section that we studied, it's the application of all that's been taught to us about the supremacy or the superiority of Christ. 
So let's begin this wonderful journey, starting in verse 19. We're gonna read Hebrews 10, verses 19 to 25, and we'll be in this passage today and likely two more as we work our way through these wonderful implications. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What we have in these verses is really one simple but powerful theme, and this is what we'll be unpacking over the next three weeks. The riches of Christ's superiority motivate sincere worship, steadfast faith, and intentional fellowship. Let me say that again. The riches of Christ's superiority motivate sincere worship, steadfast faith, and intentional fellowship. The basic structure here of this passage is pretty simple. He's gonna give us two possessions that are ours in Christ And then from those two possessions, he's gonna give us three practices that we must now live out. Two possessions that motivate three practices. Now, we're not gonna be in a hurry to get through these important truths because though this is a a short passage, there's so much packed in to these verses of practical wisdom for our day-to-day lives. And so we're gonna take our time today. We'll look at verses 19 to 22. We're just gonna introduce verse 22. Next week, we'll do the rest of 22 and 23, and then 24 and 25 the following Sunday. But let's begin by looking at these two great possessions that we have in Christ. Possession number one in verses 19 and 20, we'll call a great confidence. Possession one, a great confidence. He begins in verse 19, therefore, And as we always say, therefore is an important word in scripture because it's always cluing us into the fact that what we've just studied is about to be fleshed out. It's gonna impact what comes next. Only this word therefore is one of those rare occasions in scripture where this implication is magnified. This therefore is similar to the therefore in Ephesians chapter four verse one and the therefore in Romans chapter 12, verse one. In each of those epistles, the word therefore marks the turning point from doctrine to application. And that's what we have here. The whole book swivels on this word therefore. We've learned all of these things from chapter one to to 10 and a half, and now we're turning and pivoting to application for the rest of the book. So this is a bridge that connects not just chapter eight to chapter 10 that we just finished, but all of what we've studied so far, and it connects it to all that will be studied for the rest of the book. So with saying therefore, it's as if he's saying, now keeping in mind all that we've discussed, consider this. That's what we have 
with therefore. But then he adds a second introductory word that also sets the tone for what he's about to say. He says, therefore, brethren. Now the word brethren or brothers, brothers and sisters is the idea, is is not used often in Hebrews. It's been used before, but it's used fairly sparingly. But when it's used, it has great impact because it gives us the tone and the perspective of the author. What is, what's the tone of his voice, so to speak, as he writes? What's the, the heartbeat of the, the author, the disposition of the author? And of course, in our day and age, more than any other day and age, we understand the, the need to, to understand tone and perspective and how hard that is with the written word in particular, with text messaging. Uh, that's a, a challenge for all of us to assume the best of one another because how often have you gotten a text message and you've wondered, well, what do they mean by that, right? Because you can't hear their tone, you can't hear their voice, you can't see their posture. In the same way, the author wants these readers and us today to understand that the implications he's about to give, the commands he's about to call them to, come from the tone of brotherhood in Christ, mutual affection for one another, a tenderness for one another, an identification with these people. He's not speaking to them from a high and lofty place and speaking down to them. He's coming down to their level and saying, you are my brothers and my sisters in Christ, which also shows us that he expects that at least the majority of them are true believers in Christ. So even though he says some pretty hard things in Hebrews, he believes himself to be speaking at least primarily to Christians. So we have this tender, loving, soft affirmation Therefore, brethren. Now added to that, what we're gonna find is that he's going to use over and over again verbs that are in the first person plural. That is we. He's not going to say you or even I. He's going to say we, continually putting himself at the level and in conjunction with these people. We see it right away here in verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence. Since we have confidence. Now, I want you to notice a change here. Notice the word since. This is because the author's now gone from proving to applying. Remember how many times we looked at proof number one, proof number two, proof number three? That was a common theme throughout these first 10 chapters. Now he's using the word since, and that is to imply, I've proven it, that's done. Now let's apply this to our lives. Since all that's true, this must then be true. And what is it specifically here in this first example that's true, this first gift, this first possession? Since we have confidence. The first gift that you have in Christ that he wants us to focus on today is the gift of confidence. Confidence for what? Listen to the answer. The answer is what makes this confidence so special. Confidence to enter the holy place. Since we have this gift, this possession of confidence to enter into the holy place. Now, hopefully, when we hear the word holy place and we think about entering that holy place, a whole flood of information that we've studied comes rushing to mind because we've talked a lot about this holy place and entering that holy place. 
the sum total of the Day of Atonement, the High Priest, the Holy of Holies, the veil, all of it comes to mind as we read this phrase, we have confidence to enter the holy place. So what was fundamentally denied to the, everyone under the old covenant, covenant except for the high priest once a year is now not only available to us as Christians, but we're to have confidence as we enter. Just let that sink in. Since we have confidence to enter the holy place. What a precious gift. Confident access to the heavenly throne room of God. Now just the fact that we can enter is a gift, but this is the idea that there's an invitation, a standing invitation. And we're to enter with not only regularity, but we're to enter with confidence when we do so. And the reason that we enter with confidence is not because it's rooted in ourselves, but he immediately reminds us why this confidence is so secure because we enter, he says, by the blood of Jesus. We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Now again, a wave of doctrinal truth should be washing across our minds from all that we've studied about the significance of the death and the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice of the God-man, the one made in the image of God like us and yet not like us because he was perfectly God. It is his blood that has secured this confident entrance into the holy place. But notice the next description of this this confident entrance. It's by the blood of Jesus, but he says, by a new and living way. We enter by a new and living way. I want you to think about both of those words, new and living. First of all, it's a new way. Our entrance into the holy place is new. No longer do we have that access point of a physical temple in Jerusalem uh, behind a veil in which we have to go and enter that place. This is a, this is a new way. The idea is it, it's a new and lasting way. It stands constantly open, never to be closed for us who are in Christ. As long as Christ lives, the way into the heavenly holy place is open. Now this again is in opposition to the way the Holy of Holies operated under the law as we've seen. That didn't remain open even to the high priest. He couldn't just go in anytime he wanted. One day a year on the Day of Atonement, that was it. And he wasn't in there very long. But here we're told that this new way is a living way which means it's open constantly forever. This new way is also, again, explicitly described as being in Christ alone. We've been told it comes through his blood. Now he says, this way which, we, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. Christ brought this new and living way and he brought it through a, a new veil which is himself. He is the new and the living way. Now, this mention of the veil is intentional. It's to take us back to what we learned about the veil in the Old Covenant. Picture that veil there, the physical veil in the temple. And remember, the veil really served two purposes. We focused mostly on the negative purpose, which was to keep people out. It was to separate the presence of God from man. 
But also, if you think about it, the veil has a positive purpose because it was the entry point for the one person who was qualified to enter once a year. That's the only way to go in. And that's the idea here. It's not the negative, but the positive. The fact that Christ is the entry point. He's the entry point into the holy place and he's made that way available through himself by his blood to all who would repent and believe. As he says in John 14, six, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. And what that means is no one comes to the Father but through me. You see that? He is the veil. He is the entry point. He is the way and we cannot enter except through Christ himself. He's the new veil. Only this living way stands open. But I can't move on without also saying that while this way stands open, it's also exclusive. It's important to understand that. The negative aspect of the veil still exists in the sense that there is only one way and you may not enter into that holy place in any other way. There's no other veil, there's no other entrance. Let me say it more clearly. There is no other religion in the world that will lead you into the holy place. All else are idols and they are false, false hope. Even if that religion is self-made and you, by your own efforts, believe you've created a path into the holy place, understand that too is worse than a false hope. It will lead you not to the holy place, but to eternal destruction in hell. It means that if you want to enter into the holy place, the way has been made and it stands open to you but only if you will recognize you're a sinner who has no business actually into the holy place as you are. And if you will understand that Jesus Christ is the way because he came to this planet to live a perfect life and sacrifice that life on the cross and then to rise again from the grave. If you will understand that he is the way because he took the wrath of God for your sin upon himself and that he is your only hope, then if you will turn from your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ alone, you may enter then by the veil. But don't be mistaken, there is no other way, but this way stands open forever to all who will repent and believe. So the first gift that we have in Christ then that should motivate us to act is the gift of confidence to enter the holy place. But there's a second gift that also should motivate us to change the way we live or to act in response. Possession number two is a great priest. A great priest, verse 21. And since, there's our word since again, since we have a great priest over the house of God. Now the author is, has proven to us now beyond a shadow of a doubt that though the old covenant along with its priesthood has been removed, that does not mean there's no longer a priest. There's just one priest, the priest of all priests, the great priest, Jesus Christ himself. It's been replaced, the old has been replaced with the new and Jesus now ministers as the great priest of his people forever and ever. 
And that matters to you and I on a daily basis. Jesus is not just our priest when we finally cross over into that holy place physically and go to heaven, so to speak. He is our priest now. Because notice it says, over whom is he the great priest? Since we have a great priest over the house of God. Over the house of God. Now, as I told you, these applications are not just of what we've studied in verses eight to 10, but of everything that we have studied. And this mention of Jesus presiding over the house of God comes back from chapter three, all the way back in chapter three in his argument that Jesus is superior to Moses, he makes this point, Hebrews three, verse one. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, he was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was in all his house. Jumping down to verse five, now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confession and the boast of our hope firm until the end. The house over which Jesus Christ presides is the house of God, which consists of the people of God, all of the true people of God collectively. Jesus is the priest of every believer, both those who have already made the journey and are there with him in heaven, and us who remain here on the earth. He is the priest presiding over his church. And so this second possession of a great priest should motivate us to act because it reminds us that right now, in the present tense, we have a great high priest ministering to us. Right now, we are the beneficiaries of his present ministry of intercession at the right hand of the Father, but we're also beneficiaries of his daily ministry in his church on earth through the work of his spirit. Remember, it was Jesus who said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And that's exactly what Jesus is busy doing today, building his church, both in number, that is in saving more people, saving his people, but also in, in maturity or in depth as he grows each one of those believers into spiritual maturity. So then our great priest is at work on behalf of his people in heaven and on earth all at the same time. In heaven, he intercedes to the Father for us, but on earth, he saves, seals, sanctifies, and preserves us through the ongoing work of the Spirit. This is what it means for us to be the beneficiaries of a great priest presiding over the house of God. That's the second possession that we have, the great priest, Christ himself. Now taken together, these two great possessions must necessarily affect our practice. These are the kind of possessions that you cannot rightly have and stay as you are. They motivate us to act. And specifically, he's going to tell us of three practices that should flow out of these possessions in the life of every Christian. As I said, we're gonna introduce the first of those practices today and look at the rest in coming weeks. But here's the first practice that should be motivated by these possessions. 
Practice number one, draw near to God. Draw near to God, verse 22. Now, as we consider this first practice, we're gonna consider it from two angles, uh, from the, the quantity with which and how we should draw near and the quality of our drawing near. We'll look at the quantity today and the quality next week. Let's think about the, this practice quantitatively. Let us draw near. Now notice again those words, let us. This is uh, the, the way that he will express each one of these practices. All believers, including himself, should act in this way. He includes himself in this because these are responses, these are practices that should define the life of every Christian. This isn't something you sign up for if you want to be the Christian elite or in, in, the, in the higher club. No, this is just what it is to follow Christ as a Christian. Now, these uh, grammatically, each of these statements are not in the form of a command, but the way they're written, they, they serve with the force of a command. They, they carry the weight of a command. It's as if he is commanding us, draw near, but he includes himself. Let us all be diligent to draw near. Now, these, are, these three are the natural, necessary practices of a true Christian. Of course, the first and most basic response, the most obvious response to the fact that you and I have been given confident access to the holy place is to what? Go in, draw near. If you've been co given confidence to enter, you should enter. I should be entering. Christ has, Christ has purchased for you and I entrance into that holy place. So logically, the, the most immediate natural response is to draw near. It's another way of saying, now let us enter. Let us go into that place. The way is open. But of course, that sounds good. It may even be something we want to do. But it does bring up the question, how do we draw near? How do we enter into that holy place? Obviously, Christ has purchased for you and I physical access to that place upon our death or upon his return. To bring, he will bring us to that place physically at some point in our existence. But that's not what's meant here because this is not in the future tense. He doesn't say, let's look forward to that day when we'll enter. No, he says, draw near. It's in the present tense, which we've spoken of before. It means this, there's to be a continual uh, access here, continual drawing near. Let us draw near as our regular habit, as our practice. Now, while he doesn't define for us here the specifics of what it is to draw near, he assumes that we will understand what he means. The scriptures as a whole give us a lot of instruction on how Christians draw near to God. How is it that we enter that holy place without physically entering? And, and I would say if we want to encapsulate the the entering here and the, the motivation for entering in or drawing near in one word, I would give it the word worship. That's the big umbrella term of how and why we enter, why we draw near, but we also draw near to fellowship. Those are the two primary purposes for which we draw near to God, to worship God and to fellowship God. And this, this is part, 
of the reason why we often say the chief end of man is what? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Those are the two purposes for which you were made. It's why you're on the planet. So we glorify God through our worship and we enjoy him forever through our fellowship with him. So both worship and fellowship with God require us to draw near. You can't worship him rightly if you don't draw near and you can't fellowship with him if you don't draw near. It's also important to understand that these two actions of worship and fellowship are not mutually exclusive. We're basically doing them simultaneously as we draw near to God. As we enjoy God, fellowship with God, it naturally promotes worship of God. And as we're actively worshiping God, it promotes fellowship with God. They, they, they go hand in hand. But practically speaking, if we wanna commit ourselves to draw near to God, what specifically are we committing ourselves to do? If you wanna draw near to God today, how do you do that, practically speaking? Well, I can't exhaustively explain that this morning, but I have put together what I'll call a representative list of ways the scriptures tell us we should appropriately draw near to God. And it's my prayer as I give you these, these examples biblically, you will then begin to think more deeply of other more uh, practical ways that you can draw near to God in scripture. So how do we draw near? Well, number one, committing to prayer. Committing to prayer. It's no surprise that the most basic and consistent way that we are to draw near to God is through the means of prayer. And that's because if you think about it, the command to pray for the scripture for the Christian is not a weekly or even daily uh, command. It's a second by second, moment by moment command. What does Paul say in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17? Pray how? Without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Colossians 4, 2, devote yourselves to prayer. So prayer for the Christian should be as natural and continual as breathing is for your physical body. And I mean that. It should come to the Christian naturally. Prayer is the vehicle, one of the vehicles for both worship and fellowship with God. We pray because God is great and he's worthy of our praise. That means that frequently our prayers will turn our minds to adoration and we will give glory to God as we pray to him. And we, we well, essentially, if you, you wanna say, how do we give glory to God? That's a, a, a common phrase that's used, glorify God. How do you do that? What does that mean? Well, simply put, to glorify God is to believe that God is who he says he is and to proclaim that back to God. If you look at how the psalmists do that, they're always telling God that he is who he is. That's how we glorify him. We believe him to be who he is and we declare back to him that that's who he is. Essentially, that's what How Great is, the song that we sang today. What was that? It was a description of who God's revealed himself to be and we're worshiping him saying, we believe you're that and we love that you're that and we praise you because you're that. That's how you give glory to God. We do that often through prayer. Now, unfortunately, some who come to rightly understand the sovereignty of God in scripture struggle with the practice of prayer. And that struggle often reveals at some level, a misunderstanding of what prayer is and why God's prescribed it for us. Understand, our prayers are not meant to change God's mind. 
They're not meant to manipulate him. They're certainly not meant to free him up to do his work as if he's held back by our lack of praying. Our, our prayers don't change the eternal plan of God. But our prayers are essential to our relationship with God. We pray because we love him and we long to give him glory that's due his name. And we long to fellowship with him and we long to see his will accomplished on the earth as it is in heaven. We bring him our request because he's gracious and he invites us to do so, even commands us to do so because he genuinely cares for us. He wants to hear what's on your heart because he loves you and he cares for you. So you pray not to manipulate him into changing his will to match yours, but so that he will sanctify you and bring you into conformity with his. In addition to that, God actually does accomplish his plans through our prayers in some mysterious way. And it's because he has ordained to do so. He has said, I will respond to the prayers of my people, but he doesn't do that in a reactionary way. He does that because it was ordained before he made the world. But your prayers really do matter. Your prayers are not meaningless. Prayer is the means through which you express your faith in God, your love for God, and your need for God. And in this way, you worship him and you have fellowship with him. So Christian, draw near to God by praying without ceasing. As naturally as you breathe, come into the holy place of God by the means of prayer. If you think about it, there's never a moment in our lives in which God is not worthy of praise, in which we are not in need of strength and help, or in which he's not worthy of our affection, or or which he's not interested in our daily lives. All of that's true all the time, which means there's always an occasion to pray about something for someone or something. So don't neglect the privilege that you have, Christian, to pray. It's not the last priority. It's not your last ditch effort. It's your spiritual breath, so to speak. It's how your spiritual lungs function as you talk to God. If prayer's been a struggle for you, particularly praying prayers that are, that are rich and, and deep, let me just give you a couple of the tools that might help. One is called the Valley of Vision. It's a book of prayers uh, that's compiled from the Puritans. Uh, they're not inspired prayers, but they are good examples of, of how to pray deeply to God. We have that in the bookstore. Uh, but another is just a simple model that I use all the time. It's called the ACTS model of prayer. Just spell the word ACTS, A-C-T-S. A is adoration. C is confession. T is thanksgiving. And S is supplication, requests. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. What that does is it just keeps us from only bringing requests to God. God says, bring your requests to me. Cast your cares on me because he cares for you. So it's not wrong to bring your requests to God, but far too often our prayers consist only of our requests. This will help you balance your prayer life. But Christian, pray. Another way that we draw near to God every day is by treasuring his word. Treasuring his word. Now, it's probably not a surprise to you that I began the explanation of drawing to, near to God with prayer and scripture. But I do want you to notice that I did not say, I did not entitle this second point as reading his word. I called it treasuring his word. 
And the reason for that is because simply reading the Bible as an act in and of itself is not what is prescribed in scripture. It does not necessarily mean you're drawing near to God just because you read that day and checked off the box. Listen to how the Bible speaks of how we should think about scripture. Psalm 1, 1 and 2. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, that is the scriptures, and in his law he meditates for five minutes every morning. No, day and night. He delights in it and he meditates in it all throughout the day. And so in the same way that, that prayer is like the breath of the Christian as he, as he has spiritual life, meditating on truth is just as essential to the Christian. Psalm 119.11, your word I have treasured in my heart. It's a treasure to me that I may not sin against you. Psalm 119.97, oh how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Psalm 119.103, how sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter then honey to my mouth. Or how about the words of Christ quoting the Old Testament when he was tempted in the wilderness, Matthew 4, 3 to 4, and the tempter came and said to him, if you're the son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus says, it is my life. I live by the truth, even if it means forsaking my daily bread, because to eat would be to disobey God, then I will forsake my bread for the bread of his word. So to draw near to God through his word is to read it. You have to read it, but it's not just to read it. It's to read it to know and to love and to follow your God. We come to the word of God for the God of the word. When you read the scriptures, is it because you desperately want to know God? Is it because you love him and you delight to read his word? Because as you read it, you know him more and you're conformed more to his image. We don't read the word because it makes us feel better about ourselves. We don't read the word because it soothes our conscience because we know we're supposed to read our Bible. We come to the word of God because we desire the God of the word. And then we take the word and as the psalmist says, we hide it in our heart through memorization so that we can meditate. Now I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand, but I would guess if I did, if I asked the question, who really struggles to memorize? Who would say, I'm not very good at memorization? Many, if not most of you, would raise your hand. I, I think that's true of almost everyone I've ever met. Memorization's hard, but this is the word of God. This is the lifeblood of the Christian. If you want to hear the voice of God, you've got to hear it here in the word of God. So why would we not do the hard work and put forth the mental brain sweat to memorize it so that we can meditate on it and feast on it. Christian, put forth the effort. One verse a month, 
whatever it is. It doesn't matter how many you're memorizing each day. It matters that you're consistently hiding it in your heart, not as a routine, but that you might know God and be able to meditate on his truth throughout the day. So what does it look like practically? Where does the rubber meet the road? If you wanna draw near to God, or if we wanna describe a person who lives a life of consistently drawing near to God, what would that look like? Well, it looks like this. As circumstances arise throughout the day, you you draw your mind intentionally back to what the word of God says about that circumstance. So for example, you see the sunrise and your mind lands on Psalm 24, one that we read this morning. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. And then you flow from that into a prayer of praise and adoration for God as the creator who has made that beautiful sunrise. And then now that you're already praying, your mind begins to flow to to the things on your heart about that day and you begin to pour out to God the things that are on your mind. And as you begin to pray about your day, suddenly you think about that friend or family member who really hurt you recently and, and you feel the heat of anger begin to rise in your heart towards that person. But your mind lands on Matthew 5, 48 and you remind yourself that Christ said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And so that flows into a prayer of God's help to love that person as Christ has loved you. But then that leads you to think, how can I love them right now after what they did to me? And then your mind is drawn to 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. Now you're back in prayer, praising God for his love towards you and asking for his grace to extend that same unmerited love to this person. And that's what it looks like to draw near to God. That's why you memorize the scripture, so that when you speak to God in prayer, he can speak back through the word. So you know, what is it God would have me do? How do you know that? Because you know the word. And so you take your circumstances, you compare it to the word of God, and you ask for God's help to live in accordance with the word and not your circumstance, and you do it over and over again. And if you do that, your prayers will naturally bounce between worship and fellowship. Worship and fellowship all throughout the day. That's what it is to live a life of drawing near to God. Fill your heart and mind with God and run to him in prayer and through meditating on his word. So as you think about setting goals for this year and you think about a new reading plan, pick a reading plan, have some plan to read the scriptures. But when you sit down to read your Bible, coffee in hand or however you do it, Take time to pray and settle your heart to make sure that you're coming to the word for the God of the word and then walk with him. There's a third means that we draw near to God on a regular basis and that is to gather with believers. Gather with believers. The Christian life is not merely a personal experience. It's a familial experience. To be redeemed by Christ is to be brought into his family. And this gains you not only a heavenly father, but a whole host of brothers and sisters who love and know him. We're called to draw near to God individually, but we're also commanded in scripture to come together and collectively draw near to God. That's what we're doing this morning. We're obeying the command of God to corporately, as a family of believers, draw near to enter into the holy place as as it were. Listen to what this looked like in the early church, Acts chapter two, verse 41. So then those who had received his word were baptized and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. 
They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. They began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Notice immediately in the Christian community, when these people came to Christ, it immediately drew them to be with other people who love Christ. And now they're entering in, fellowshipping with God together. And that's what we're to do. Colossians 3, 15 and 16 commands, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Listen to this, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Now what's that gonna look like? Well, it's gonna look like this, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts. One of the ways that we draw near to God corporately is through singing truth. And as we sing with one another, have you ever thought about what you're doing when you stand shoulder to shoulder and sing and we declare things like we declared this morning? What you're doing is you're singing and declaring truth with your voice and the people in front of you are hearing your words and the people behind you, you're hearing their words and together we're admonishing one another. Christian, believe this, remember this, stand firm in this. And so we fellowship shoulder to shoulder and we corporately draw near to God as we worship and declare to him, you are who you said you are and we believe it and we're gonna walk in light of it. That's the gift of the corporate gathering among other things. 1 Timothy 4.13, until I come, give attention to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. This is what God has called us to. Come together regularly, read my word, Pray the word, sing the word. And so as we come together then, we prioritize the word of God by reading the scripture, singing the scripture, preaching the scripture. We prioritize prayer by joining our hearts together publicly as we go to God our Father as a family. We speak of God's goodness to one another. We proclaim the goodness of God in our conversations and how good he's been to us and we have fellowship then with God and with one another. We use our gifts to serve Christ by serving each other. We express the love of Christ to one another in tangible ways by showing concern for one another's spiritual and physical needs. And we encourage one another in our conversations with, with well-timed words fit for the moment that we might build each other up as Paul told the Ephesians. And as we do these things in our corporate gatherings, he then causes the body to be built up in love, he says in Ephesians 4. And so if we're to draw near to God, it's gonna include these things, but many more. And I encourage you to think this week, what are some other ways that the scriptures call us to draw near, but don't miss the point. Jesus Christ, your great priest, has purchased you with his blood and thereby given you the gift of confident access to the holy place of God. So draw near. Draw near, pray, sing, 
Give thanks. Read, memorize, meditate. Gather, serve, speak of God's goodness. Pray and encourage one another. And in so doing, draw near to God. Let me ask you, is this description a description of your life? Are you characterized by drawing near to God with a genuine heart? As we close our time, I wanna finish by looking at just a couple of examples of things that often keep us from drawing near. With such a gift like this, I think we can all say it makes sense that we should be drawing near to God, and yet so often we find ourselves not. So often we say, man, my prayer life is just struggling. I just haven't been in the word this month. Just had not been a good month. Been real busy. We find ourselves saying that, don't we? How can that be with such a gift as this? If we really understand what it is we've been given, how can we ever say that? And yet we do. So what are some of those key things that keep us often from drawing near to God? Well, here's just a few. The first one is ignorance, and I mean that in the, in the kind sense of the word. I wanna be careful to note that there, there are many true Christians who are simply unaware of the right and biblical way to draw near to God. Part of that is because there's a lot of bad teaching out there about how to draw near to God. The most popular method, I would say, in broader Christianity, uh, Christianity of drawing near to God is to go out somewhere by yourself and just sit quietly and listen for God to speak to you. And that's how we're told to draw near to God. And what that does is it encourages you to interpret your feelings and your thoughts and your impressions as if they are the divine voice of God speaking to you. And it breaks my heart because I've personally witnessed Christians frustrated and afraid because they want to hear the voice of God. What's God's will for me? And, and I don't know. I got to go out. And I got to listen more because he hasn't told me yet. And their sanctification is stunted because they're neglecting the word and true biblical prayer for trying to hear some voice spoken to them. Listen, if you want to go out by yourself, that's a good idea. If you want to go out and hear from God, that's a great idea. Bring your Bible. If you want to hear from God, get somewhere quiet and read your Bible. This is where God has spoken to us. And you can know it verifiably. And I promise you, whatever you're walking through, whatever you're experiencing in your life, the will of God is expressly written on these pages for you, either a direct command or a principle that you can apply to your situation. But the scriptures are sufficient. So turn to the word and don't feel the pressure to try to analyze your feelings and thoughts and emotions as if those are divinely inspired. Praise God, they're not. They're as fickle as what we ate for dinner the night before. But a second reason that we often fail to draw near to God, let's just admit it, is laziness. It's just, we're often lazy. The truth is, we're far too often prone to misunderstand the true value of Christ and what he's done for us. And because of that, we're tempted to value a whole host of other activities as more worthy of our time than stopping to get into the word and pray. Career advancement, hobbies, sports, family time, vacations, sleep, and entertainment are all on the list of things that we're tempted to think will be more worthy of our time than stopping to spend time with our Savior. 
And when we're lazy about our spiritual lives, we're actually prioritizing lesser things above the best things, the glories of Christ. Let me tell you, nothing you do on a daily basis is more vitally important to your life than drawing near to God. Don't give in to the fleshly temptation to value lesser things over the privilege that's been purchased for you of confident access to the holy place. And then thirdly and finally, actually there's four, sorry. Thirdly and one more, (laughs) unrepentant sin. Unrepentant sin is one of the big reasons that we often fail to draw near to God. And what happens with unrepentant sin is we don't wanna draw near to God because we know what he will require when we do. And we don't wanna give it up, which is the definition of idolatry, is it not? When we neglect and draw near to God because we know that it will bring convictions over sins that we don't wanna give up, what we're saying is I value this sin more than God and that is the essence of idolatry. So Christian, if you're in Christ but you've been reluctant to draw near to God because for a season you've been giving in to a sin that you don't wanna let go, let me encourage you this morning, burn your idol in repentance. Burn it to dust and run to the Savior. There is no idol that can compare to the glories of Christ. He is superior over all. But a fourth and actually final example, something that often keeps us from running to God the way we should is what I've called lesser substitutes. Lesser substitutes. I have to be careful with this one because there are some things that God has even prescribed in scripture that are good for us to do gifts that he's given, but they're not to be done to the exclusion of prioritizing drawing near to God as primary. Let me, let me explain what I mean. Often we need counsel, we need strength, we need encouragement. We're down and depressed or, or in need in some way. And we, our first response is to reach for someone or something to help. We draw near, if you will, to substitutes that may even be good things, but we draw near to them while neglecting to actually draw near to God. Let me give you some examples. Family, friends, ourselves, just trying to deal with it in our own head, books, sermons and seminars, or solitude. Just a short list of things that we can substitute for truly drawing near to God. Now, I say I have to be careful because Talking to a godly friend about your situation can be part of drawing near to God, but not, as, not if you have replaced drawing near to God with just having a good conversation with a friend. And so one way to think about it is, do you often ask people to pray for things that you have not yet prayed for? Oh, please pray for me. I'm going through this. I've got this big thing at work. I've got this thing in my family. Please pray for me. But I'm neglecting to, to spend any time drawing near to God and pray myself? Do you turn to close family members and friends because because they help you truly to draw near to God or have they become sort of your your blanket, your warm blanket and I just need to be near them, that's what'll help me? No, it won't if you're not also drawing near to God as your primary source. So before seeking to talk to a friend for counsel, seek the face of God. Go to friends for counsel, don't hear me. Go to, the, go to a Bible study, pick up a good book on that issue. But, 
Are you reading that book and willing to do what it says or does it just make you feel better to read about it? We gotta be careful. Do you mull things over in your head and feel as if you're working on things because you're thinking about it or do you actually speak to yourself the truth of God in your head and commit to walk in the light? Do you seek out solitude just to have a break from the noise of your circumstances or do you seek solitude to get alone with the Lord, Bible in hand, to hear from him in scripture and to pour out your heart to him in prayer? There are many good things, even God-given things on this planet that are a help to us in our spiritual journey, but they're terrible substitutes for what God alone has promised to be and do in our lives. So seek counsel, pray with godly friends, read good books, listen to good sermons, but only as a help to you truly drawing near to God. We're out of time. I've got more things to say, but I'll save them for next week. I'm just gonna leave you with this. It's really two responses that I've just described for us. In a nutshell, they are this. Meditate on God's gifts in Christ. And secondly, confidently draw near to God. If you wanna apply this message, that's it. Meditate on God's gifts in Christ and then confidently draw near to God. What a gift that he's purchased for us, amen. May we never neglect drawing near to the holy place by the blood of Christ. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for such rich truths, glorious truths of what you have done for us, that we can have relationship with God, real relationship You've given us your word so that we can know your, your will and what you desire for us. But God, give us the, the appetite for truth and help us to run to you as our first primary instinct before running to lesser substitutes. God, help us to be a body that gathers here corporately, but also throughout the week to encourage one another to draw near together in fellowship with you and worship of you. And God, help our lives to be characterized by taking advantage of the gift to draw near. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.